everyone, and welcome to this week's Jan Arden podcast. I am Jan Arden. Caitlin Green, uh, who's normally with us, has left us. I don't know how long she's left us for, but she finally just said, I've had it with my condominium. I'm going to go do something uh, fun. Now, where did she go, Adam? I think she's just taking a little vacation this weekend. Is it a staycation? Because that would completely defeat the purpose. No, I think she was going up north. I, I got a text from her. I'm pretty sure she went up north. Up north. Does anyone ever go down south in, ter- in, down south in Toronto? I don't think so. It's always up north. Okay. Unless we're going to Buffalo or something for the weekend. But no, it's always up north. Right, right. Well, it's exciting because it's, – well, it's not exciting that Caitlin's away, but I'm, uh, I'm very glad that you're here, Adam, and working the control board because I don't know how any of that stuff works. But I have an old friend of mine – um, and we haven't spoken for a long, long time, but I just called her up a few days ago because Terry Clark kept coming, popping into my mind. Terry Clark just kept popping into my mind. I'd be walking down the road with the dog and I'm like, I need to phone Terry Clark. And then I'd be, you know, grabbing a few groceries and I need to phone Terry Clark. And then I heard her in a drugstore that I went into about three days ago and, uh, Girls Lie Too was playing uh quite loudly and clearly and you know, you know how you stop and i'm like is that the song because it's never loud enough to actually understand what you're hearing in a shopper's drug mart the music is there just to annoy you i don't know because so i stood there and i'm like yep that's terry clark that's it i've got a phoner so here we are i'm like will you do my podcast she said yes i will which i was so thrilled about so welcome terry clark uh speaking to us from an unknown location in southern <laughs> ontario Hi, Jan Arden. How are you? I'm so good. Welcome to the podcast. This I feel like we're getting caught up like in public because, you know, it's like a coffee date. We're on Zoom right now so we can see each other. You guys can't see us because, of course, we just use the audio on these. But you look great, Terry. You don't age. Like you just, time stands still around you. Well, thank you so much. That's that's a huge compliment, and I owe I owe it all to uh, my heroin habit. It really keeps me very very young. Your hair is super long. <laughs> You've got super long COVID hair. I do actually. I haven't been to the hairdresser for so long. It's uh, I've been getting those little root touch up kits, you know, that you do yourself. And then when I talk to my hairdresser on the phone. They tell me that that's like the worst thing to do. Never do your own hair. But I don't know if that's like a conspiracy, a hair conspiracy. Because they want you to go back to them sooner than later. But, oh, yeah, it's getting – I'm not only getting gray now, like on the top, like a, a skunk. I look like Pepe Le Pew half the time. But it's coming in on the sides where my where my uh, sideburn area would yes. be if, if I so were a male. <laughs> why, do men, why do men look more distinguished, Adam? Because I'm looking at you with like a gray and a dark beard – kind of very uh, Cruella DeVille, only in a beard. And men look more distinguished and women just look older. Like, why don't we look cool with gray sideburns? We don't have sideburns, Jan. Well, what do they call, <laughs> what do they call, we do, but what do they call, like our little side part? I don't I know guess what the, that would be called. Well, for all accounts and purposes, we're going to call them sideburns. Anyway, uh, you look fantastic, and um, I know that I'm speaking to you. You're in Canada right now. You live in Nashville for the most part, but you've had a place in Canada the last 13, 14 years, and what a godsend that must have been to you during all this. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I feel like 
this is such an unprecedented time and never in a million years could any of us have imagined that we would experience a pandemic. Okay, floods and there are earthquakes and there are fires and there are um, terrible yep. things that happen in the world. But this is almost like that bizarre dream that you're having. That you're wanting to wake up from at some point and go like, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what I dreamed last night that we were all in a pandemic. And, you know, us artists and musicians, we didn't work for a year or more, could be um, the way things are going. But it's just, uh, it is a godsend because I always feel better when I'm home and going back to my roots and coming back to Canada, the minute I cross that border, there's a light, a lightness. Uh, I feel like I just feel lighter. I can't really describe it. I feel safer and lighter. And I always have even before the pandemic. So um, I think it's all about going back to your childhood and remembering a carefree time. And when things and being around family and, and friends and people that matter to you, I think that this is a huge perspective check for so many of us yeah. and what, you know, what really matters. And if, if, if we can't take the human suffering, the, the, the loss of income and livelihoods and life and find some sort of ray of greater good or some sort of message for ourselves that we can learn something from it, then, then it's in vain. And I can't believe that this is all in vain. It's got, it's got to, there's got to be uh, something that we all individually can learn from it. Well, for people like you and I who are in, the music business, uh, there's an incredible amount of traveling as a singer-songwriter or in a band. Um, obviously, you can't just sit at home and have, you know, 2,000 people come and sit in your backyard twice a week, as much as that would be really awesome. Uh, <laughs> so for me, I don't know about you, Terry, but when it all kind of stopped, I came back from a gig in the Bahamas on the 7th of March, and I really have only left the house a few times since then. But I didn't realize how tired I was until we stopped. I mean, yeah, it was stressful, all of this, and you felt anxious, and I felt a bit blue and depressed. But on top of that was a profound fatigue from being on the road for the last 25, 28 years. So what was it like for you to pull the brakes up and go, yeah, all my work, like our work disappeared mm -hmm. in 24 hours? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it was involuntary, and I don't know that I would have voluntarily taken this type of breath or this type of time. I love what I do. I love connecting with audiences, but again, like you were saying for the last 25 years, I've done between 70 and 140 dates a year, nonstop. Oh. Haven't, haven't, haven't taken more than maybe three weeks at a time off. Yeah. Um, and you just become conditioned and trained that that's what I do. I'm a road dog. I just climb the bus. I show up at midnight and then I get home on Sunday or Monday and a lot of weekend stuff. And up in Canada, you know, sometimes six to eight weeks straight, as you know, in Canada, you, it's not like you can bebop home on the weekends or, nope. or on Monday for a few days. It's, it's a, a large geographic space you to go. Yeah. You just keep going. So, um, it, it, I had to embrace it, Jan. I had to say, you know what? Instead of looking at it like, oh my God, I'm not making any money. How am I going to pay for this, that? How am I going to, you know, my fans are going to forget about me. How do I stay, you know, relevant? How do I, I I'm not playing my, you know, you tend to put some of your own uh, value and self-worth in, in an audience's applause. It has been, it has been a real eye-opening experience and I just had to embrace it at the end of the day and go, you know what, I'm going to 
take this in my own personal life because it's creating so it, it's just it's so horrible for so many people right now um, that are losing houses and jobs oh. and trying to get their businesses back on track and then stumbling again. It's just horrible. So, you know, I, I feel so much pain for those people, but on, on a personal end for me, I'm trying to look at the bigger picture and that um, maybe I just needed this and I wasn't going to do it for myself. So it sounds like you're the same way. So what, I mean, you talk about, you know, coming back up to Canada and sort of reconnecting with those childhood memories and stuff. And I just want to go back a bit in time because your childhood seems pretty locked and loaded to me. It seems like you had a pretty, you were a pretty happy kid, but you had lots going on, obviously a divorce with parents. Uh, you spent a lot of time with your grandparents who were very musical. And I just want to know when the music bug hit you. And I know you've been asked this question a billion times, but I think we're all getting nostalgic as we're getting older. So mm -hmm. you at some point set your sights on Nashville and it was Nashville or bust, Nashville or bust. So how did, how did that start for you? The music thing? Well, my grandparents and you met them, you, yeah. you know, they, they didn't live very far down the street in Calgary and you used to pop over back in the nineties and we'd all visit. And you know, it, it, uh, it started with them and my mom and, and I came from a musical family. My mom used to sing me to sleep playing Buffy St. Marie and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez songs. And um, so I grew up with, you know, my mom sitting on the edge of my bed with her guitar instead of reading me childhood child bedtime stories from a book. That's what she did. Oh, when awesome. I was nine, when I was nine, I picked up the guitar and I used to spend time with my grandparents and he was always playing fiddle and guitar and they were always singing classic country songs and so my parents being very young and restless and going through the divorce and everything, I ended up moving seven times before I was in junior high school. And um, I could never really felt very settled as a child because we were always picking up and moving somewhere. And when we finally wound up out West after my parents divorced and my mom remarried, uh, we wound up in Medicine Hat. And uh, <laughs> I just, I, I walked into of the Of course room. you did. Of course and, you did. Of all places, from Montreal to Calgary, back to Montreal, to Calgary again, and then to Medicine Hat. That was kind yep. of the trajectory of how that, a lot of zigzagging. Um, and when I wound up in Medicine Hat, finally just felt we had a house and a cul-de-sac, and it was, it was my little Mayberry and. I finally was, my mom was able to stop working as a single mom, and I would walk home from school at lunch and she would make me sandwiches and I was started taking the guitar very seriously. And I'd sit with the guitar at lunch and at dinner when she was making dinner. And, um, she was finally able to be like a mother, like she wanted to be, you know, the, the PTA mother and, and taking the kids to brownies and CGIT and, um, you know, being a part of our, our lives and in, in a way that she hadn't been able to be before. So because she was busy trying to make money to support us and, you know, I picked up, I walked into the living room one night and I saw the Barbara Mandrell show on TV and it yes, was like. With the sisters, the Barbara Mandrell and her sisters and, and they played every instrument under the sun. They had the freaking banjo, saxophone, piano, guitars. I, I, that, that was so, that was girl power at its finest for, for women like you and I, Terry, to see girls doing that. It was mm -hmm. transformative. Yeah, they were like the Dixie Chicks before the Dixie Chicks, or the Chick well, now, I should say. The, the, yeah, they're called the Chicks. We yeah. are, we're, we're, we've got Terry for the whole show, so stay with us. You're listening to the Jan Arden Podcast. And I just want to say that Terry Clark, as far as I know, the last time I checked, is the only Canadian female country member 
of the Grand Old Opry. Is that correct, Terry? Am I saying that correctly? <laughs> yes, you are. And you've also, you've also been inducted into the Canadian Music Country Hall of Fame. Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame, yes. Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame. Uh, at the Grand Old Opry, she was like, just probably had her mind blown off. But <laughs> Terry's with us for the whole show today. So you're in Medicine Hat playing guitar and you must have had the bug, right? Oh, absolutely. And by the time I was 14, I was starting to do a lot of local contests, talent shows and things that they would play on the local chat TV station and, and uh, wound up at a provincial talent show called the Dick Dameron Cattle Country Jamboree in Brooks, Alberta. And Oh, Brooks was so big for country music. It oh, really was. Time. That was a big festival. And, you know, I, I wound up up there. I was 15 and every other contestant was well over 20 in their 30s. And, and I got first place in that. And that led me to a national competition in, um, in Edmonton where I lost because, and it was sponsored by the CCMA and I lost the, uh, I lost the contest and my mom and I were standing backstage and they were reading off the winners and they started at third place and it wasn't me. And then they went to second place and it wasn't me. And they went to first place and it wasn't me. And our hearts were broken because oh. everybody in the contest was telling us we had it. They were, they were like, Terry's you've got this. We're going to go to dinner and celebrate. There's, there's nobody that can touch you. And they were all just saying, do you, this do you remember me, so. who won? His name was Jerry Ness. I have no idea where he is. He was about 50. Yeah, and where me, is he? <laughs> right, and at that time, I thought, that old man won over Screw that you. Old man, and now I'm over 50. But um, they, they had to disqualify me, and I didn't realize this, but I actually did win, but they had to disqualify me because Budweiser was sponsoring the uh, talent show, and I was And underage. you were too young. Yeah, and I found that out 10 years later at the CCMAs when I was winning all the awards that the head of the CCMA, Tom Tompkins said, I need to tell you something I don't think you're aware of. And I said, you could wow. have told me that 10 years because my mom cried all the way back to medicine hat. We were just devastated. And that's you're, when she said, Terry, I'm going to take you to Nashville. She said, screw it. We're going to Nashville. Your mom said that? Yeah. Your mom, who I got to meet many times, was your greatest cheerleader. She was your greatest fan she was your mom, but she was your momager kind of. And, and, she, and she was, <laughs> she just, but, but she didn't do it in kind of like a Brooke Shields mother kind of creepy way. You know, she really understood music and I think she really understood your talent, but she was tough on you too. Yeah. You know, uh, she did. She, I consider her, she was sort of my coach and I would sit with the guitar while she was making dinner and she would tell me, she'd be like, you're pitchy here and you should soften up there and find more dynamic. She really helped me. And she was also my emotional support for so many years. We sat on the phone for hours and hours and she was like a sister and a best friend and a mom all rolled into one and a mentor, you know, my, she was a mentor to me and I just trusted her. I trusted her implicitly with everything, her, her, I just, there's nobody on this planet that I can say I've ever trusted as much as I did my mom to have my best interest at heart and to always have my back and look out for me above anything else. Because, you know, I mean, there, it, it, the world is full of ulterior motives and opportunistic people, and you just don't know who to trust after a while. But I always had my mom. 
So, uh, you know, when she passed away in 2010, it was, it was like losing a lot, not just a mom, but I lost a lot there. And gosh, it's been 10 um, years. 10 it has. Years. Yeah. Yeah. But well, you know what? Uh, I earned my adult stripes. It was time for me to fly and be on my own. Yeah. Well, she prepared you well and she was a great person. So you guys get to Nashville and what was the, what was the mo what was the end game? Like we're going to go down there. We're going to do demos. We're going to knock on the doors on music row. What the hell were you going to do? Well, crossing the, I was so nervous crossing the border because I didn't at the time have a green card or any way of getting a job. So I had to, we had to really think on our feet about how I was going to find a place to live and, pay for that place. To How live. old were you? 18 now? 18 years old from God. Medicine And it was culture shock. I mean, oh. just the climate, just the climate going from that Alberta, you know, summer, <laughs> I went from Alberta in May to Tennessee in May. And it was, it was brutal, hot, humid. Anyway, my mom and her best friend, Pat drove me down actually from Toronto. My mom flew out to Toronto. I had wound up in Toronto for a few months. It's a long story. Um, so we, we actually left from there. Um, and you know, I, I was, I was afraid of not, not getting in almost as afraid I've, as I've been about not getting back up to Canada with COVID going on. This is the second most afraid I've been about crossing Yeah, you're the reliving your past. No kidding. In the other direction. Um, so, no, we, we went to Nashville and started looking for a place for me to stay, found a room to rent. And just so happened that the woman renting the room in her condo also was looking for somebody to babysit her little boy who was two or three and she was working shift work. So she had to work in the middle of the night at a factory. So, uh, I agreed for a little bit of reduced rent to watch Rory for her. And um, in the meantime, uh, while we had secured that part, that piece of the puzzle, my mom only had a week to stay because my brother Peter was only five in Medicine Hat. And she had to get back home to him. And you guys just you guys just left him in the house alone with the tap dripping, right? What right. a great story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a, just a bag of food open on the floor and the tap dripping. But anyway, he he survived. He's no worse for wear. No, he's doing great. I just can't believe it that at 18, like when I was 18, Terry, I was so naive. I just I couldn't have fathomed. I would have been too afraid to leave home at that age. I mean, I stuck pretty close to home until I was, you know, until I got my record deal. That was like when I first started traveling and I was 29, 29 or 30. So what, you were just going to write songs now? You, you looked after Rory and how did you end up at Tootsie's? Tootsie's is a, is a bar downtown on the strip and it was backed across the alley from the original Grand Old Opry where Hank Williams, Patsy Cline, like all the greats, came up through the 40s and 50s, 60s, 30s even. Hey, Terry? Yeah. yeah and it, it's... They, they would go across to Tootsie's and, and have a drink and then go back for their encore. There's some great stories. But if you go to Nashville, you have to go to Tootsie's. But, Terry, you ended up singing there. We've got like 30 seconds. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this segment and I'm going to come back because I want to just hear how you ended up there because it really was the beginning of – this amazing journey that you've been on. We're going to be back. You're listening to the Jan Arden Podcast. My very, very special guest is the one, the only, Terry Clark. And if you're jogging or driving your car or anything like that, we hope you're enjoying yourself. We hope you're enjoying the Terry Clark and Jan Arden 
Jan Arden podcast experience. Terry is about to tell us how she ended up at Tootsie's, which is the most epic, classic, country, western, narrow, weird, dirty-looking pictures on every corner of the wall. <laughs> like, you, you, you can go in there and get a, a beer for a buck on a Tuesday night and listen to, usually, almost always, on the tiniest stage the world has ever built that is built into the front window of the bar. So when you're walking down the street, you're literally like one of those, I'm going to say ladies of the night in Amsterdam that's selling her <laughs> wares in the red light district, only you're playing guitar. So, and everything's lavender. <laughs> and you literally have a hat there collecting tips and money mm. and you're singing to people drinking on a Monday afternoon. How'd well, that happen? My, my mom and Pat, her friend, and I decided that before they left town to head out and left me there, we were going to do some of the tourist trap stuff. So we went to the Hall of Fame. We went to the Grand Ole Opry and saw an Opry show. And I said, I have to go to Tootsie's because at that point as a teenager, I had read every autobiography there was and a lot of history and country music. And I wanted, I, I just, I knew my stuff. I wanted to be a kind of a, bit yep. of a historian and know what I was doing. So we went, walked into Tootsie's. It was empty. Now, in the late 80s, in 1987, when we walked in there, and for about 10 years before that, the place had been pretty much abandoned and forgotten. The whole street, it was ravaged with like a, a lot of drug deals and shootings and uh, prostitution, a lot of peep shows, pawn shops, adult theaters. It was not what it is now. It Now it's just, you know, it, it, it's Mardi Gras. Very contemporary yeah. Hundreds, if not thousands of tourists, very successful, very clean, very yeah. reclamated, as they say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but when you walked in, it it yeah. had seen its glory days. It had. And it, it was really, uh, I, I was taken with, I was so excited just to be at Tootsie's. You know, I'm 18, I'm looking around and everything just looks like Disneyland to me because I'd read about it in, in all the movie and all the books and seen it in movies like Coal Miner's Daughter. And I was like, oh, I can't believe I'm here. So I, my mom and Pat pushed me to ask the guy who was singing if I could sit in. And there's nobody in the place. It was just, just desolate. And so hey, I got come up on, and the bartender, the waitress. There was the a bartender. And a, yeah. yeah. I think the bartender was the waitress. She was doing both jobs. <laughs> kind of like a TV crew in Canada. <laughs> yeah. 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 One guy, one guy doing the interviewing and the camera operating. Yeah. Anyway, so no, she was. And, uh, it, I got up and started to sing. And as the afternoon progressed, the tip jar started to fill because people started to fill the place and they offered me a job singing for tips. By four o'clock, we went in around 10 a.m. By four o'clock, I had been sitting there all afternoon singing and singing oh. and people were filling the place up and the tip jar was filling up. And the guy who's, who I, you know, sat in on his deal took all the money because it was his shift. And I'm like, well, damn, we're taking all the money. Yeah. And they offered yeah. me a job and I took the job and I had to figure out how I was going to get down there. I didn't have a driver's license in Tennessee. I didn't have a car. So I looked up the bus schedule and from the place oh my where God, I was, Terry. Oh, seriously. From the place where I was renting the room from the woman whose kid I was watching uh, in the middle of the night, all the way downtown was about 10 miles with a guitar on a city bus and stop after stop, after stop, after stop. It took me two hours to get there and two hours to get back. And walking down Lower Broadway, yeah, you know, with at eighteen with a guitar with a Martin guitar in my case and tied to my wrist with a shoestring, um, it was an interesting time. <laughs> it was character building. But wouldn't you say, like we in the music business, we talk constantly about paying your dues, and it feels like 
what we see now, certainly in the last decade, we look at these models of how fame works in the music business. And a lot of it is to do with The Voice, uh, American Idol, these contesting shows where in an 18-week cycle, people are plucked from obscurity. They sing in these shows. They're suddenly household names. They're given these deals that are terrible freaking record deals. Mm -hmm. They're like these 360 deals where they basically take everything the kid makes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're launched onto this platform where they have absolutely no practical experience performing. You and I were cut from a cloth where by the time... Well, you, you, by the time we've signed our record deals, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of performing experience. Do you still think that is an integral, important part of climbing up the ranks in music? Like, would you tell kids they've got to, they've got to get to open mic nights, they've got to just write, 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 they've got to get out there and, and earn their keep? Like, I'm, I have no regrets about that. I I feel like the hunger years and the years where you struggle and you don't know what's going to happen, but you're doing it anyway, and you're not doing it for money, you're doing it for the passion and love of it are the best years of your career. I really, I feel all of those years leading up to whether or not you have success, and hopefully you do, are they really do build your character and they toughen you up. And And I think that when you do, you're not, not everyone's going to be a fan. You're going to have critics. You're going to have people that pan everything you do or, or love everything you do. Um, I just feel like it really, it, it's a soul enriching mm-hmm. climb and experience. And I know that you traveled in vans and played dirty bars a bunch before you got your deal. Um, oh, for 10 years. It's like training for the Olympics. Okay. An Olympic athlete. I mean, the training, it's your training years. And I think it makes you a better athlete when you get to that place, when you can go back and recall and remember, it makes you appreciate your success that much more because of what you had to go through to get it. Had you had the opportunity to do a contest type show, the Terry that was 18, 19 coming to Nashville sees a poster for the voice, Canadian American Idol, Canadian Idol, whatever. Would, would that have been something that would have interested you or would you have, I, I don't know if I, the Jan back then would have had any courage to take that on. And I, I, uh, and I wouldn't, it's not that I would be worried about failing or, or not making the cut, but I just don't think I had the personality yet to go be in a contest, but would you have done that? Well, I entered a lot of local contests, so maybe I would have, but I, I watch those shows and I don't know how those kids get through it. Like with every eye in America and Canada and wherever on them. And so critical. Oh, I, I'm too, I think I'm too sensitive. I think I would have been too sensitive and and I'm, it's a character flaw. I'm very sensitive and I don't reveal that a lot. Are you glad there was no social media? Oh, thank God. Yeah. I, yeah, thank God. But you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know that I, I would have been pushed probably by people around me and my mom, you know, would probably have said, why don't you go try out for that? But God, honest to God, Jan, they're freaks of nature. They're so good. I don't know that I would have made the first damn audition cut. I don't know. You know, I, I'm a stylist and I'm, I'm not a bad singer, but I don't consider myself the kind of singer that that some of these people are, they're like doing vocal Olympics and acrobats all over the place. And they're just so good. It is the talent out there. And do you think that there's more talent now, or do you just think that there's more exposure to talent now? 
I think there's just more exposure. But having said that, a lot of times when I see that contesting, I don't see people that have any sense of who they are or any sense of what their voice is. And I think when you are a singer-songwriter, you learn over a, a great period of time, like decades, of how to write for yourself. I feel like I've been writing songs for 40, over 45, 45 years I've been writing songs, and I feel like I finally know how to write for myself. The key, the pitch, the, the mm-hmm. notes, the, the phrasing. I don't know if you feel that way. I, I feel, I think true artists do get better over time. And even, it's been a little, a little, it can be a little frustrating to me because I feel, uh, you know, when I was 26, 27, 28 through 34, 35 were my heyday years when more people were paying attention. And I feel like I'm, I'm 10 times the artist, singer and songwriter and entertainer and guitar player than I was then. And, um, you know, it, it, you start to, it, it, it can be a little bit frustrating because you still want people to pay as much attention because you're that much better. You Terry, feel better now, but Terry, they two words for you, two words for you, Tanya Tucker. Oh yes. So uh, you're, when you're you, correct. <laughs> when you would, we're just going to wrap up the segment, but when you think about, I think the best is yet to come Terry for you. I really do. And in a Renaissance way, in a way where people are absolutely very aware of music now. This COVID thing has brought the arts to the forefront of everything. But Tanya was considered kicked to the curb, done, over, finished. Brandy Carlisle and a group of incredible people, you know, lifted her out of, I mean, she always toured. Tanya has toured all over the place. But anyway, Tanya Tucker, what an incredible record she just did. We're going to be back. You're listening to the Jan Arden podcast. I've got some fun things to talk to Terry about. The fabulous, unbelievably talented and better than ever, Terry Clark. This has gone by so fast. I'm almost, I, I'm dreading it because there's so many things I want to ask you about. But we were talking about, you know, paying our dues and um, just how unbelievably important it was to have those years of struggle and all the obstacles. It somehow has just made it so worthwhile. And to skip out on that, I think, Terry, is is what younger people they really miss out how can you go on a stage and expect to entertain people without without stories without experience that's why they send those kids out there you know they send like eight or ten of them out there because they've only got two songs each (laughs) yeah and you know i think it helps with songwriting too that struggle you know gives you it just strengthens your character in a way and and gives you experiences to write about i mean what are you going to write about if you're like what do you write about when you haven't lived, when you haven't been out there and struggled and been hungry and figured out how you're going to catch the bus home and, and you in the bars and playing to those rough crowds and, and traveling around in a van. And, and, you know, how do you, I, I do think it, it enriches your songwriting and, oh, and of course. your soul and your hunger for it. And then you get it. And then when you get your record deal and, and you finally you know, you finally find that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You are terrified of losing it. <laughs> it becomes yeah. like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta hold on to this. And I think that you well, and that's I were talking when the work a bit. Starts. That's right. When it's, the work it's, starts. You know, it's not when you get your record deal. It is giddy up gold from the moment you sign that paper. You can you because you're never what you did in the music business. You're what you're going to do. Absolutely. Right? I yes. mean, you can have a you can have a brand new record that you're promoting, and the day that you go into the radio station to talk about your new record that just came out, the goddamn 
DJ will say, what's next, Terry Clark? And, and they like, still Jesus. do. <laughs> yeah, so what's next? Um, what's up next? What is your, like, I, I want to hear about people that you met, like famous people that when you first started out that you met, that you were just like, holy crap, I'm meeting. Because I know you and your friends kind of with Reba. And, um, but who did you meet like coming up? The ones I looked up to so much that the first time I met like Winona and Ricky Skaggs and Barbara Mandrell and Reba, I mean, I think to this day, I still revert back to this 14 year old who was in their fan club when I get around them and, and get just tongue tied and goofy. And I'm just, you know, it's kind of like when you're, when you're, when you're 50 and you run into that boy you had a crush on when you were 13, you turn 13 again, or you get around <laughs> your friends that you used to hang out with. I just turned 13 again. I just go right back to it. So yeah, I, I, I got to tour with Reba twice. Um, when I was working a day job, when I finally was legal to work in the States, I had a day job selling cowboy boots and she walked in and oh, I swear to God. Oh my I, gee, like what, yeah. you must have just crapped. I did. I did. I peed my, myself a little did bit. You, did you talk to her? I did. And I told her I was trying to get a record deal <clears throat> and oh God, how Terry. much she meant to me and how I had been in her fan club and I was from Canada. I'm sure I was just like babbling like at the mouth. <laughs> and uh, she was very nice. And then when she left, I said to myself, the next time you meet that woman, you're going to be meeting her on a peer level, on a, on a different level. You'll have a record deal. And not a sales girl selling boots, which didn't make me any less of a person, but I wanted to meet her and it did. And I wound up on tour with her and she brought an eight by 10 framed, a framed photograph of her little boy, Shelby, who was two at the time when she brought him into the boot store. I sold him his first pair of cowboy boots. She brought me a family photo of him and those cowboy boots that he signed and handed it to me. And I said, you remember, because this was four, five years later. I said, you remember me? You remember I was the same girl in the boot store? She said, I'll never forget it. Of course I do. <laughs> so she remembered that I'll never day. forget it. I'll never forget it, Terry Clark. She's a really great person. I mean, I have a Reba story too. My road manager, Chris Brunton, who you know, mm-hmm. he's been with me for 16 years. He has become friends with Reba because um, his friend, Carolyn, looked after Reba for, for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Carolyn Schnell. And so we were both in Vegas at the same time or something. And uh, Chris is like, Carolyn wants to know if you and Rebo like want to go for lunch with us. And so the four of us went for lunch at some place and she was the nicest person. She was so normal. She had an iced tea. She was talking about, I, I, well, I wish I could eat that. I'll just get fat. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> She is. She's very. Like she genuine. was. She was playing at Vegas <laughs> with, uh, you Brooks know, and Dunn. yeah, right. Brooks and Dunn, and and the show was so fantastic. But anyway, we, when we meet our heroes and they're actually nice people, it it's pretty special. Um, I, I your your Reba was my Olivia Newton John, but I didn't meet her oh until I was gosh. well into my forties, and wow. I had a crush on Olivia Newton John when I was like fourteen. Um, like I, I just listened to her music so much and Adam is nodding that he had a crush on Olivia Newton-John too. And you, and you're kind of leery because you're like, are these going to be nice people? Olivia Newton-John is the nicest, kindest, humblest person. She's still one of my favorite voices to this day, her and Karen Carpenter. And I have Olivia Newton-John's email. I got a chance to sing a duet with Olivia Newton-John fast forward. And 
so I understand your moments of this dream and reality crashing. And we were talking on, on one of the breaks about, I wish we could have appreciated, really appreciated when all these things were happening to us, the awards and, and traveling the world and doing all these things when you're in it. But what, why do you think we can't? Why do you think we're just not really realizing what's happening? I think some of it's just being shell shocked. I I don't I think you prepare for it, but you can't prepare for it enough. And then when it happens and everybody's all of a sudden looking at you and paying attention to you and you've got people pulling at you to do this that and the other, you miss a lot. And there were things I got to do like being on a TV show with Dick Van Dyke. I mean, oh my lord, where I met Barbara Mandrell for the first time and it I that is all a blur to me. The George Strait tour is a blur to me. It, it's. I remember you touring with George. Just it. It, it was all so uh, surreal. It just feels like you're in a bit of a dream, and it's it's foggy. And I find as I'm getting older, bits and pieces are starting to come back a little bit more. I'm remembering it better. But in the in the midst of it, it was 90 miles an hour and just go 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 go. You didn't have time to really sit and let it soak in for very long before there was the next thing to do. So I think that's part of it. It was, it's, it's, it was just, uh, it was just pedal to the metal that entire time. And, and you were the same way, you know, during that period of time. And it's, I, I talked to other artists who say it's all a blur that we're all in the same boat. It's all a blur to, to a lot of us. Well, people will, will say, <laughs> what was it like being on this show? Or what was it like being on, you know, Letterman, or what was it like being on Leno? And I'm just like, honestly, I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I, I remember little bits and pieces, but I, I don't remember a lot, Terry. I don't remember, like I, I see clips of, you know, walking up and getting, being on the Junos or except do, I don't remember it. I don't remember the outfit. I don't remember how, who did my hair. Like I didn't have any help in the early days I don't know about you, but I didn't have stylists or hairdressers or makeup people. When I went to the Junos, I just got myself ready in the hotel room. I remember borrowing clothes from my mom's closet to go. I didn't have any help. And that was at the height of it. Yeah. That was, that was insensitive, good mother, yeah. all that stuff. I had no help. I remember doing the Junos with you. We did the Bruce Coburn <laughs> tribute. We yes. did Wondering Where the Lions Are. And they lost my clothes on the flight up. And my outfit arrived like five minutes before we were supposed to do that. What oh, I wouldn't do goodness. to see that clip. I would love to see that clip again. Oh, it's on, it's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah. I I've seen it. So it, it. You can find it. You can find anything online now. You okay. Know? Well, even things, even things you don't want to look at, you'll find and you'll go like, Oh God, I wish I hadn't found that. <laughs> well, I want to leave with a little something fun. I, 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 I think, um, You've had an amazing career, Terry. Your, your mom would be so proud of you. Your dad would be so proud of you. Your grandparents are watching over you. And, and I'm glad you're safe and sound in Southern Ontario. Listen, here's a little story that I just want to get your opinion on. So just recently in the news, the OPP, since this is an Ontario story, you know, we might as well ask you, uh, rescued a woman from a camping trip that had gone sideways. She went with another girlfriend. They were going to canoe down a river together. They had their tents and stuff. Anyway, they had a giant freaking fight. And the one girl left the, her friend and just, they got, had a fight, marched off, 
And anyways, the OPP ended up having to go rescue. Is there any kind of fight that you could ever have with anyone that would leave you to strand, just leave your friends stranded in the bush? <laughs> no. Thoughts, please. Friends don't leave friends stranded in the bush. I They're mean, calling it a he heated argument. And they received a report <laughs> of a stranded per person on the Spanish River. Um, on, this happened June 21st. Okay, I do want to say one thing. Could you see dudes doing this? Never in a million years would a guy do that to another guy. Uh, wouldn't they? I can't Adam's shaking his head. I don't think so. I think they would okay. just duke it out and, and you know, get a Band-Aid for their bloody lip and go on. I don't, I don't see dudes doing that. We're so dramatic sometimes. <laughs> this is what really gets me, Terry, that made me laugh like out loud. What a great way to finish the show. So th they, they, they split the sheets, right? I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Well, one woman <laughs> got the canoe, obviously, but I think the woman that left ended up going down the river, get this, on an inflatable sleeping pad. <laughs> she MacGyvered so, <laughs> not, not even an air mattress, an inflatable sleeping pad down a river. For one thing, at 1130 at night, I would be so scared to even like leave a fire pit. Anyway, I wish our show could go on and on. But Terry, if you and I ever go camping, I would never leave you, honey. I would never leave you no matter what we thought about. Even that if it is was the last marshmallow. That is yes. a true friend, Jan. Well, you are my friend. And, and this has been a great chance for Terry and I to reconnect. We probably haven't spoken in person for two or three years anyway. Um, but we used to do much better about staying in touch. So from going forward, that ain't going to happen anymore. We need you know to see what? social. I think social media has just given people more permission to lose touch on a more personal level because you think you're keeping up with people. But we, you know, my social media, I just show like the best three seconds of my life every day. And that's about it. <laughs> They don't want to see the rest. <laughs> I love you, Terry. I love you too, Jan. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. We will talk to you very soon. Thanks for sharing your stories. Get out there. Make some noise, people. And uh, don't be afraid to fail because Terry and I are excellent at it. Ah, there you go. Yes. You have been listening to the Janard Podcast. My very special guest, Terry Clark. Totally do. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.